This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus Chat, keeping your eyes healthy in the new year. If this is your first time on a Bright Focus Chat, welcome. I'll tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're going to do today. Bright Focus funds some of the top scientists in the world trying to find cures for macular degeneration and glaucoma and Alzheimer's. And what we like to do is to share the latest news and best practices from the fields of science and medicine. We offer a number of free publications uh, and materials on our website, brightfocus.org. And so today's chat is an example of that. We're going to spend uh, a little over a half hour today uh, you know, dis discussing uh, macular degeneration and answering some, some of your questions. Let me tell you about today's chat, again, keeping your eyes healthy in the new year. Our guest is Dr. Edward Marcus. He's an ophthalmologist in the New York City area. And uh, we had him on a, uh, about a year ago, right before the, the pandemic started. And so we thought it was a great opportunity as um, to bring him back and, and, and hear what he has to say as, as we enter 2021 and, and people take stock of their health and make plans to, to be a little healthier in the new year, we thought it'd be a great opportunity uh, to, bring, to bring him back. So again, um, Dr. Marcus, well, welcome back. And I was wondering for those who missed your last chat, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you end up being an ophthalmologist? Great, well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it again, and it's a great having a chance to connect with all of you on the on the call here. So uh, I am an ophthalmologist and specifically a retina specialist, vitreoretinal retinal surgeon in the New York area. Um, I work as the uh, head of retina in a relatively large, now multi-state ophthalmology practice called SiteMD. Um, we have offices spanning from, you know, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, uh, mostly in lower New York State. Um, we treat all areas of, of eye disease, uh, obviously me specifically treating the, uh, the retina. Um, I got into ophthalmology. There's a short answer and a long answer. I think the long answer is more interesting. Uh, I wanted to enter a field of medicine that um, had both medicine and surgery. In other words, there's an opportunity to be in the OR and to do surgical procedures, but not be the entirety of the profession. I want to see patients. I want to do small procedures. I want to meet people, treat chronic disease as well. Ophthalmology, um, specifically retina, was a great um, opportunity for that sort of practice. Uh, there's a lot of um, technology involved, and it seemed, and ret treating retinal disease is always kind of on the forefront of uh, every uh, pharmacological breakthrough. So it's just kind of been an exciting feedback loop. Um, it's a it's an area of medicine that I can treat, you know, severe disease and, and make people better. So it's a real chance every day to take people who can't see and then make them see. Uh, you know, it's, it's really rewarding in that way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that's essentially the journey. Yeah, well, that's wonderful. That, that's it's it's great great to hear the the motivators that 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 send people into into this type of work. So we talked to you just before the pandemic started uh, in the winter of 2020. So we wanted to to check back with you and how um, how has your practice changed since the pandemic started? So it, it's been a progression. Uh, at the very beginning, most of our larger practice was completely shut down because people were very afraid and and essentially limited everything to only essential and emergency um, visits and treatments. 
for you know the aforementioned reasons, almost everything I do is urgent and emergency. So we were still kind of up and running during the total lockdown period. Um, so my practice was running basically normally, except not at full capacity because some people, though they should have come in, were afraid to at first. Um, we had all sorts of very new and you know interesting precautions that people hadn't done before. People were still feel, feeling their way through. Um, but I think what we've largely learned over the past year, you know, as a society and, and as a as a practice, is what's safe, what's important, and and what really isn't. Uh, I think people have learned over you know the the months of the pandemic that going to the doctor is very safe, and there's you know little to no spread of COVID in doctors' offices. Um, you can go to your uh, go to your appointments and feel like you know like you did before. I mean, yes, there's something covering your face, but uh, other than that, your appointment is as as it has ever been. Um, we've you know obviously put in these you know overreaching deep cleaning sterilization procedures, which are largely um, you know for show and for. Uh, you know, for, for good effect, the, you know, cleaning the, the chairs and, and the walls doesn't really prevent the spread of COVID, but, it you know, that smell of Clorox really makes people feel safe in the waiting room. Um, but, you know, overall, we've really, you know, come down to understand how to make the visits safe and normal. And, you know, people, unfortunately, at the very beginning, didn't come in for their visits because they didn't feel that going out was safe and doing their everyday activities was a was a possibility. And some people, unfortunately, lost a lot of vision and, and ended up in a pretty bad way because of that. But since then, you know, both the importance of saving your vision and getting your regular treatments uh, and the relative safety of just coming to your appointments was was realized kind of simultaneously, and we've been kind of running at full normal capacity ever since. Well, that's great, and that's good to hear. And as people start turning their attention to the vaccine, is there anything that people that have um, AMD or other uh, vision diseases is there any are there any questions or concerns that um, they should have about the COVID vaccine? Their only question would be how to get it sooner than soon. Uh, I think that the this is an absolute you know blitz to get as many people vaccinated as soon as possible and as well as possible. There's this is the only chance we have in fighting this pandemic. There's it it does not affect macular degeneration, uh, as far as we know, it doesn't affect any other disease state uh, in in existence. Uh, the only real precautions that have come up have been you know allergic reactions, which you know for better or for worse you can't really predict who's allergic and who isn't to anything before they actually experience it. Um, but, you know, there hasn't been any other health concern that's come up. I guess there was a report of pregnancy, you know, being a potential factor, but I don't know how many people who are pregnant have age-related macular degeneration. Um, but, you know, that's sort of been the only safety signal. Um, so, essentially, it is it is imperative for as many people to be vaccinated as soon as humanly possible across the globe, because that's our only real chance. We need 80% of the population immune at the exact same time for this to go away. And getting the disease and uh, getting over it doesn't provide immunity for more than three months, really, unless you are really, really sick, in which case you may have a year or so of immunity on board. Mm -hmm. That's great. Certainly great advice. And so, Dr. Marcus, um, you know, during um, have you noticed, you know, with your patients during the pandemic, have you noticed, you know, signs of of isolation or loneliness, or do, do your patients seem different uh, during during this time? 
Yeah, we, we've seen a lot of it. Um, we unfortunately have a lot of patients who've lost a family member. Uh, we hear about it all the time, and then we haven't stopped hearing about it. Unfortunately, you know, there are people who are in states of grief, you know, at various visits because of that. Um, and then clearly, that's the most, you know, traumatic thing that can happen. But there are certainly elderly people who have not been in contact with their children or their grandchildren because they're they're too afraid, or conversely, the their children and grandchildren are too afraid to to be with them. Uh, there are people who have just missed visits because, or missed you know months of visits because their you know family that usually spends time with them or takes them just isn't isn't around. Uh, they're in other states. They can't travel. They can't uh, come to you know help out with certain tasks. Uh, the isolation has absolutely affected us in a very noticeable way from day to day. Um, even in, in the office, people are isolated from the people they come with because we can't have family members, you know, with patients. We don't want to overpack the waiting rooms in the office. So, you know, we have lots of patients who usually come with a spouse or with a, with a child that, um, you know, writes things down and accompanies them. They're not able to come with that person. So there is some miscommunication because their, you know, their partner at the visit is not there. So we've had some issues just live at the visit with, you know, the temporary loneliness of just not being with your spouse who's waiting for you in the car. Um, yeah. So absolutely, we face this on a daily basis. Great. Any tips for uh, for patients, you know, that are, I think, understandably troubled when they can't bring a, uh, a care partner in with them? Or sort of how, any tips for both patients and uh, uh, in you and your colleagues to to kind of work, I don't want to say work around it, but but sort of work in this context. Yeah, usually we'll have patients notify our staff if they need for someone to be with them in order to write things down or for them to remember, uh, you know, the details of the visit. And they may not accompany them the whole visit, but, you know, when they're finally called in to see me, then their significant other or, you know, children would be called into the room from the car or the parking lot so they can partake in that last part of the visit. I guess the essence of it all being, you know, in, in the exam room, if there's like three people in the room and we all have masks on, we're pretty safe. We just don't want to have like, you know, 100 patients plus their husbands and wives making 200 yeah. people in the waiting room. We want to just, we, we've again, like everything else, we've adapted. We found ways to, you know, make it as safe as possible. Yeah, no, it's it's great. It's great to hear. And, um, you know, kind of pivoting to, to, AMD in general. We've you know, received a number of questions already today for people looking for updates um, on on how AMD is treated. So I was wondering if we could just start with dry AMD and geographic atrophy. Is there anything uh, new or coming down the line in, in how to treat dry AMD? Sadly, the most promising uh, thing, uh, which was brimonidine, or some people with glaucoma may know it otherwise as alphagan, um, uh, the compound was found to be neuroprotective, and there was an investigational drug from uh, Allergan, which was a depot shot of alphagan or bromonidine in the eye. But when uh, Allergan merged or became a part of AbbVie, uh, some of their products were dropped. And this was also around the time of pandemic when they were kind of streamlining their product line. So actually the most promising thing was dropped from the lineup and the research was, was halted. Um, so that there are a couple of other things that were un, under investigation, some monoclonal antibodies, which are similar to 
ILEA or Lucentis, but to treat uh, geographic <laughs> atrophy were looked at and were not very successful. Really, the only thing that seemed to have any sort of promise, unfortunately, <laughs> was stopped in its tracks. Uh, so we're essentially left with our old armament of, you know, ARIDS vitamins, careful monitoring with either the Amsler grid or some of the newer products like the uh, Notel Vision um, for C Home, um, and just you know, keeping on top of monitoring as closely as possible. Yeah, no, that's great advice. I'd like to to just uh, stay in that point for for another minute or two. So, in terms of monitoring your eye health um, in between visits, and and as you said, some people that in between time might be a little longer than uh, you know than prudent. But during that time, how do how does an Amsler grid and the 4C monitor how how do those work? So the answer grid um, essentially is is boxes on a piece of paper. Um, it's it's the old graph paper basically, and you, you, looking at it one eye at a time, you want to ensure that the lines you're seeing are straight. If if the lines start to look bent or wavy, uh, that's something called metamorphopsia, or you know, just changing change of of things, which indicates that there's either subretinal fluid or some sort of disturbance of uh, the retinal photoreceptors that they've kind of like moved around by some force, usually subretinal fluid, that causes a straight line to look wavy. So distortion of of straight lines is one of the earliest signs of trouble in in uh macular degeneration. So that's something that obviously requires you know patient participation and understanding, but on the other hand, it's extremely, you know, simple and easy to understand. So it rarely ever fails. The only problem with the Amsler grids is people kind of get bored of them and they just kind of fall into a drawer somewhere and never get looked at. You know, if it's if it's somewhere prominent and noticeable, then people will see it and do it all the time. The 4C Home is a step above that, which is basically using a computer-generated algorithm that a patient looks into a little kind of binocular-type device on their desk, and it me measures a patient's, you know, metamorphopsia or lack thereof, um, and a computer analyzes it and sends us a report. Uh, and if there's any sort of sudden change in someone's ability to see straight, we'll be notified and call them in for a visit right away. Um, more on the horizon, but not quite commercially available yet, is the home OCT or kind of more sophisticated home monitoring where we're taking the, you know, um, interpretation of the patient's own, you know, experiences out of the equation and just basically taking an OCT or a scan of their retina at home and, and analyzing that and sending that to us on a regular basis. And that's obviously the real future, which basically takes our office and puts it in the patient's home. Um, mm -hmm. But that's not there yet. Uh, that's being commercially developed. It's being, you know, marketed, and we're not quite uh, at that stage yet. But that's really the future. No, that's great. It's really yeah, I appreciate covering the the range of that. To our listeners, Bright Focus provides an Amsler grid, which Dr. Marcus just spoke about. Bright Focus provides these free of charge, and um, they're magnetic. So the concern that Dr. Marcus mentioned of people not seeing, using them. Uh, will go away if you if you put them on your refrigerator and you look at it every day. So what, what I noticed, I'm sorry to jump in for one second here, is uh, an interesting trend is the uh, the rapid decline in the presence of magnetic refrigerators in this country. That there's really? so many people that have like, either a stainless steel refrigerator or or some kind of like wood paneled refrigerator. And people are, you know, the kitchen is a much more, you know, uh, commonplace to to dress up these days in in a person's home. So people don't have magnetic fridges anymore. 
So they kind of have this magnetic thing, but they have nowhere to put it. So it ends up yeah. right back in the drawer because there's nothing to stick uh, it to. All right. We will try to uh, uh, maybe get some that, that could, could go up a, di a different way. I appreciate that that point. So, um, you know, uh, getting back to the um, treatments, is there anything new regarding treating wet AMD? There's always something new regarding treating wet AMD. Um, and I'll kind of simplify it by saying that, you know, the goal of or the, or the incremental goal of all these new medications is to lengthen the time in between injections. It's still all injections, but there, the idea is to reduce the amount of injections needed in a given amount of time. So there are drugs coming out that have the treatment interval going to every uh, eight weeks or every 16 weeks, uh, every 12 weeks. You know, it's, it's all about the amount of weeks in between the treatments. There, uh, you know, about a year ago, a year ago, yeah, about over a year ago, a year and uh, three months ago, we had uh, a new drug that came out called BioView um, or Brolicizumab from Novartis. And that promised to extend this, the treatment interval to a pretty uh, consistent every three months or every 12 weeks. And, you know, that was a big breakthrough because that's the first thing that really hit the market since ILEA in 2011. Um, you know, BioView or Brolicizumab had a major safety signal that came out, you know, a couple of months after its release that people were getting severe intraocular inflammation. Um, and even sometimes devastating and, and vision, you know, devastating vision loss associated with it. So it was rare, but it was enough to give people pause. So the, the drug works really well. It's still on the market, but there are these rare cases where people have severe irreversible vision loss from the treatments, and you have no way of predicting who it's going to be. You kind of just roll the dice each time. So that obviously sounds a little scary. Um, there is... Uh, a medication on the horizon from the makers of Lucentis, which promises to extend the treatment interval to 16 weeks, so every four months. Again, it works well in trials, but we don't know if there's going to be some strange safety signal that comes out or, uh, you know, some warning, uh, or if it really works at every uh, 16 weeks. Because originally, ILEA or um, Iflibercept were supposed to be a every eight-week injection, but we quickly found that, you know, it doesn't always get out to eight weeks. It could be every four weeks, or every six weeks, uh, and doesn't quite get to eight weeks. But you know, it still works better at, at, than the other one, and the results are good. So even though it doesn't meet its stated goal of being every eight weeks, it's still better than what we had before. Um, and you know, some people are expecting that trend to come out in the new medications as well. There are depot uh, injections, uh, which is basically that this, uh, a surgeon like myself would insert a tiny little reservoir inside the patient's eye. And that reservoir would be filled once a year with medication such as Lucentis, and it would be slowly re released into the eye over the year. Um, obviously, that's a little bit of a left turn from just getting injections. That's a surgical procedure with, you know, occasional filling. Uh, you know, people are coming up with different ways to do this. Um, there are generic medications hitting the market soon. Uh, or called biosimilars. Uh, the, the landscape is definitely getting more broad and more interesting, but really there's still just injections and questioning how often to do them. That's wet AMD. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I appreciate it. A lot, of, a lot of things coming down the road. Do any of these have the ability to restore vision loss, or is, it, or is this more delaying or preventing? Yeah, well, yeah. if someone has a, a lot of subretinal fluid in kind of an acute state of wet macular degeneration, drying up that fluid will improve the vision dramatically. So interestingly so, enough, though it is a you know much more severe condition, wet AMD is reversible. 
Um, whereas, you know, geographic atrophy or kind of the end stages of dry AMD are not reversible in any way. So it is the opportunity we have to treat that vision loss from the subretinal fluid and hemorrhage that um, that represents the real, you know, uh, improvement of vision that people are looking for. Great. And to our, to our listeners, um, uh, we provide free of charge a written transcript of, of the Bright Focus chats. So a lot of the great um, updates that Dr. Marcus just gave us um, uh, we will be in our, our transcript free of charge. And again, you know, more sort of on the topic of treatments, Dr. Marcus, how any tips for patients who have uh, you know other chronic conditions that they're seeing other other um, uh, other, other physicians for? Like how? Uh, you know, we always joke in my house. We wish we had like a general contractor to kind of manage <laughs> to manage all these things. Like, yeah. any, any tips for uh, for how patients can can best coordinate the care that they might be receiving with you and and other um, other specialists? The question I get a lot is, you know, what if I come in in you know five weeks instead of four weeks? Is that okay? You know, or what if I skip you know February because I'm down in Florida or something like that? And the answer is always it's not okay. Uh, unfortunately, you know, time is vision, and a lot of the um, vision. And we learned this from the pandemic because people were afraid to come in, and they couldn't, go, you know, bring themselves to the doctor's office because they were rightfully afraid of what might happen. So we've learned that the only way to ensure that things go well is to stick to the plan. Uh, you know, getting to the doctor's office, unfortunately, is the only way that you can be treated for wet macular degeneration. The good news, on the other hand, is if you're just being monitored and you have dry macular degeneration or kind of a quiet, uh, stable state, um, there's a lot of opportunity for home monitoring, which is uh, both available and on the horizon, which should, you know, keep you uh, at least comfortable with what you're going through when you can't come to the doctor's office because there's a good chance we'd catch something, you know, from, from your home. Uh, but un unfortunately, the, these treatment regimens are fairly strict because that's the way to best deploy the medications. Um, you know, obviously, longer-lasting medications like the every eight-week, 12-week, and 16-week ones will make it a little bit easier. But it's still, you know, there is this burden on the patient of coming in all the time to get one eye or both eyes treated, and that's really the only way to ensure things go okay. Yeah, that's no, I appreciate that. And we've um, I think through the pandemic, you know, it, I think in a good way it's raised more attention to to, to science and clinical trials. I was wondering, do you have uh, um, do you have advice for your patients on on clinical trials and you know in, in in vision health? Like, is this something that patients should should ask you about or or try to pursue? Kind of compared to how the the COVID vaccine got developed. Like, it, I just think it's raised people's awareness. Is wondering what you think yeah, about the market. Yeah. Well, the FDA has um, a, an extensive database of ongoing clinical trials that, if you are internet savvy, you can easily search them by disease, so you can see exactly what's being invested what stage it's at, and, uh, you know, if there are results, um, it's, been, it's fairly easy to read, even if you're not super medicine savvy. Um, unfortunately, people who are armed with both a, a computer and a telephone can also find, uh, you know, endless amounts of garbage and, and fake news, too. Um, and, you know, for every patient or every family member who brings in, you know, uh, wonderful questions about on uh, pipeline drugs and things like that, I also have clippings out of newspapers of, 
you know, uh, I don't know if you guys are fans of the Music Man, but it just comes to mind. Professor Harold Hill selling the the band uniforms. You know, all these, uh, you know, kind of fake wannabe vitamins and and supplements and things that you know are named like you know Bright Health or you know like uh, Sunrise Vista or these things that sound like you know extremely well marketed, but end up just basically taking your money and doing nothing. Um, there's a lot of, just like in every other part of life, there's a lot of fake news and a lot of people trying to take your money out there. So I think that a good uh, thing would be to become familiar with the FDA's clinical trials website and uh, the information's out there. It's very readily available to anybody. Uh, so it's um, it's great because you can ask all the right questions when you come to your visit and you'll even know what's coming down the pipeline. When is this going to be available? When can I sign up? That's great. And in about the 10, 12 minutes we have remaining, I want to kind of uh, pivot to, to diet and lifestyle. Um, what, uh, what type of foods are best uh, for your vision health? And, uh, and conversely, what type of foods should, should someone stay away from if they're concerned about age-related vision disease? Sure. Um, fruits and vegetables tend to be high in antioxidants. Um, I guess coffee and red wine also has uh, high antioxidant content. Those tend to be protective, and that's uh, those reflect kind of what's contained in the arids to preserve vision uh, vitamins. Um, uh, it's just like in any other part of the body, you know, fatty fried foods that uh, contribute to uh, blood vessel disease and atherosclerosis are also damaging to the eye. Those should be avoided. Um, I mean, not avoided. No one can all avoid fried foods altogether. But anything that contributes to like heart disease and and uh, and the like would also be detrimental to the eye itself. Um, it, it, there's a lot of research out there, but nothing conclusive about blue light. So a lot of people have started wearing blue light glasses when they're on the phone or computer for long periods of time because mm -hmm. there's some thought that that blue light exposure could lead to um, retinal damage over the long term. Um, I, I don't think there's anything conclusive, though. So this is a theory. It's, it's a, it sounds plausible, but there's not been anything proven. I mean, it certainly doesn't hurt to put on blue light glasses. So this is the kind of thing that you can, you know, treat as evidence and not hurt yourself by protecting yourself. Uh, so that's something that's been out there. Obviously, sunlight and sun exposure are uh, detrimental to folks with macular degeneration. So, you know, wearing sunglasses when you're outside for long periods of time. The biggest one is smoking. I mean, smoking is bad for every reason on earth, but this is yet another reason why smoking is bad. Uh, it can lead to more aggressive and more end-stage forms of macular degeneration. Uh, you can't change your genetics, but that's up there. Really, you know, keeping a healthy diet full of fruits and vegetables and avoiding smoking is, is the one-liner. Yeah, I appreciate that. And a, minute, a couple minutes ago, you talked about vitamins and supplements, and uh, we have a number of questions today that relate to um, what are the best vitamins. I know people hear, you know, AREDs, but when you go to the store, it seems like you have a lot of different different products that maybe mention uh, eye health or AREDs. Could you just tell us a little bit about how you guide your patients um, on the topic of vitamins and supplements? Of course. Um, AREDs um, was the original trial, and AREDs 2 was the second trial, examining the exact 
composition of vitamins that were shown to prevent progression of macular degeneration and geographic atrophy and vision loss. Anything that is not AREDS was not studied. So um, we know AREDS works in that exact formulation that's on the box, and anything that differs from that is completely unproven and at best, you know, a guess. Um, you know, people deal with patents all the time. So if they come up with something like slightly different, uh, I know people talk about saffron, people talk about all kinds of, uh, you know, natural supplements. If you go into the vitamin store, there's, you know, hundreds of different things that say like lutein on, on it or something like that, or have the word I on it. And, and there's no way I can tell you that it's bad for you. I mean, certainly, you know, taking some antioxidant vitamins aren't, isn't going to hurt you. But the only thing that we know for a fact is going to help is the Bausch & Lomb AREDS2 Preservision. Uh, the reason for AREDS2 is that um, in AREDS1, there was something called beta-carotene, which in people who were smokers or are smokers has been shown to increase the risk of lung cancer. That is in AREDS-1 and applies only to people who were or are smokers. But AREDS-2, which is what you'll find everywhere, AREDS-2, that's the blue, green, and white box, that does not pose any risk to anybody. Well, great. No, I appreciate that because, again, we get a number, number of questions about that. And um, in terms of uh, you mentioned you have different, different tinted glasses, we have a few questions today from people that are wondering about that in, in driving. Is that something that um, are there special tinted glasses that could could you know help them driving in the winter or you know kind of you know, the, um, any advice for people that have uh, driving concerns? The question of driving in glasses is really very nuanced because I guess it depends on what your deficiency is. Uh, some people may find that um, they have a lot of glare, especially after they've had cataract surgery, especially driving at night. And for those people, like a polarized lens or specific driving glasses might be best. There are people who, you know, may just need sunglasses. There are some people who may need, um, you know, certain kinds of telescopes or more sophisticated glasses if they have central vision loss. Um, the, the real question would be more for the optometrist who makes the glasses because they would have to know your specific deficit or what exactly is bothering you to tailor uh, the glasses to, to your needs, but certainly all sorts of things can be addressed with different types of glasses. Right. And kind of final question related to about driving. How, you know, in your experience, uh, how can a family best handle what just seems like a really difficult, sensitive question about when someone, when it's time to, to put the keys down? Like, in, kind of in your experience, your observation, what, what helps a tough conversation like that you know, go okay. Well, um, obviously getting a feel for the person and knowing what's going to speak to them the most. I mean, sometimes it's a matter of just, you know, firing the, you know, the biggest cannon you can saying what you're doing is against the law and you could go to jail for doing this. This is not, not only, you know, or is this not a good idea, but you could actually end up in jail for this. You could, uh, you could kill someone you may think you can see, but if you give someone the idea that, you know, that they may not know, they may not know that what they're doing is illegal um, or, or that it could end, you know, once you put the idea of, the, of, of seriously hurting or killing another person, that really speaks very deeply to them. And then, you know, what I always try to end with is, is acceptable alternatives, you know, like uh, telling someone, well, this doesn't mean you can't go to the supermarket, it just means, you know, 
you need someone to go with you. Or, you know, this is here's your daughter. She lives 10 minutes away. If you need to go to the supermarket, go with her. Or, you know, let's why don't you teach mom here how to use Amazon or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, whatever supermarket is in your area, they probably deliver. So, you know, just learn immediately focus on adapting. Don't focus on the negative of you can't get in the car and drive whenever you want. But, you know, what are some things you can do to adapt pretty easily? That's great. No, the, the, I, it's it's good advice across a number of a number of settings. So, uh, Dr. Marcus, as I think about today's conversation and how last time we uh, we got we were able to do this was right before the the pandemic. I think a big takeaway from that I, I have from our conversation today is that uh, is that it is okay to go back to the um, uh, you know to 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 continue to. See your your eye care professional on the on the regular recommended basis, and it really sounds like you and other practices have really um, you know t- taken a lot of great steps to uh, to ensure that people are able to to continue the you know their 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 prescribed care. So I think that was really very reassuring. I think for all of us uh, to hear that today. So just to conclude, Dr. Marcus, I was wondering sort of a, a big picture thought you want to leave us with. Maybe that's something you learned in your career or kind of one recurring piece of advice you give your uh you give your patients or maybe one piece of advice you give yourself uh as you approach uh uh your work. So I wonder if you have sort of any concluding thoughts for us today. Uh yeah, that um I guess especially pertinent to our talk today that um progress is always marching forward. Um there's always something that's going to do the do the job better. Um we have a lot of people focusing on making products and product delivery better. And, you know, if you feel like you're not happy with the way things are going or you feel like you're, you know, through the burden of treatment is too much, then there's there may be something great just, just over the horizon for you. Or if you feel like the pandemic is too much and you're lonely or you can't get to do the things you do, pandemic's going to be over one day. And also, you know, the more we know, the more we adapt to dealing with the pandemic as it is. And, um, you know, humans are very adaptable people. Uh, Excuse me. Humans are very adaptable species. And and we're very good at learning how to make the most of a situation from the very most desperate to to the very best. So uh, I think taking everything with a grain of optimism is, is extremely healthy. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And it has shown, uh, for all the challenges, the last uh, 11 months have definitely shown that resiliency of um, of the human spirit and, and the importance of asking for questions. So, just really appreciate all the all the great advice you gave us today, and we're encouraged to hear of um, progress being made, particularly toward toward wet AMD. So. And uh, this will become the, the transcript and an audio file will be on our website uh, early in February at brightfocus.org. Uh, lastly, our next chat is going to be Wednesday, February 24th. It's going to continue today's discussion and talk about um, uh, getting the care you need and the, the, the different type of uh, uh, providers that, 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 that help people on, on vision. Dr. Marcus, thank you very much. I'm glad we had the chance to uh, uh, to catch up, and he gave us a lot of a lot of good good updates and and good advice. So thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. On behalf of Bright Focus Foundation, this concludes the January Bright Focus chat. Thanks. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.